The fact that Christianity began to exist is one of the most remarkable facts in uh, the history of the world. And we know that it did begin to exist because, well, it still exists. And one thing that uh, historians talk about is what exactly led to the beginning of Christianity. Um, It's hard to see how a group of Jews who had no expectation and no belief that a Messiah would die and then rise again for the forgiveness of their sins would all of a sudden do that. And they all just, at some point, radically shifted their views of eschatology, their views of of the Messiah, their views of salvation, their views of which day we worship, the views of all sorts of things, all of a sudden out of nowhere. And we know it didn't come from their reading of the New Testament because... This belief is what led to the New Testament. It's this, the New Testament didn't lead to belief in the resurrection of the Messiah. The resurrection of the Messiah, that belief, led to them writing the books we call the New Testament. And it didn't come from the Old Testament because they had read the Old Testament and none of them saw that in there. We have a lot of writings of Jews uh, prior to the time of Jesus and there was zero expectation of a Messiah who was going to come and instead of defeating their enemies, be rejected by them, killed by them. And then rise again. We do have movements kind of like Christianity, uh, or or rather, let me say, we do have messianic type of movements where people thought that someone was coming to bring redemption to them. Someone was coming to, to free them from Roman subjugation. But what happened in every one of those is when Rome stepped in and crucified the leader, the people either gave up on the movement or the people found a new leader. They didn't say hey, this person raised from the dead and is still alive and we've all seen him and his tomb is now empty and you can go check and verify that and we are willing to believe this to the point that you can kill us and we're not going to give up this belief. All of the sudden, this radical shift happened and the question is, how? Why? Why didn't the enemies of Christianity just go to the the tomb and say, he's not risen, he's right there? They could have done that. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to disprove the resurrection if they could have. But it couldn't be done because, strangely, the tomb was empty. The best the the critics of Christianity could say is that someone stole the body. But notice, by admitting that, they're admitting that the tomb is empty. Modern historians, we talked about this a little bit last week on Sunday night, some of them, in order to explain this, say, well, maybe, maybe they so loved Jesus and were so heartbroken after his loss that there were there was the experience of hallucinations that uh, the early believers had where they actually thought they did see him and then they went and proclaimed that message and again there's a bunch of problems with that uh, one hallucinations don't empty a tomb and so you would still have a body in a tomb if it was just hallucinations secondly we have language to describe hallucinations it's called hallucinations. We have language to describe visions. In fact, in, in the, the book of Acts, you'll see sometimes they'll have visions and they'll call them visions. Those aren't the same thing as actually objectively seeing and experiencing something and eating with someone and, and touching someone physically and, and all of those things that early Christians did and believed that they did and were willing to die for those beliefs. The fact that many people in different times and in places experienced these uh, appearances of Jesus is another way to know that it wasn't just hallucinations. You You don't usually share hallucinations with other people. Those are personal things. Those aren't the types of things that you walk up to someone else and you say, that was a wild dream we had last night, or, or that was, that was quite the hallucination we experienced. Like, 
hallucinations are personal things. And yet many different people, in fact, the New Testament actually tells you, a lot of them, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says there are over 500 people who saw him, most of whom are still alive. You can go talk to them. And so you have a lot of reason to think it wasn't just a hallucination. There actually was an empty tomb. And because of this, people went around saying that they saw him. They seemed to truly and sincerely believe that, being willing to die for it. And a religious movement was radically transformed. And there was no reason other than belief that it's true for someone to want to become a Christian in that world. It wasn't an easy life. It didn't offer more money. It didn't offer more respect. It's like people said, fine, I'll suffer for the rest of my life to become a follower of Jesus, even though he was crucified by Rome, and I have every predisposition to avoid this movement because I don't want to be crucified by Rome, but I'll believe it anyway. Why? Because I believe he was raised from the dead. Why do you believe he was raised from the dead? Does scripture tell you that? Not exactly. Why? Because I saw him. Because the tomb is empty. Because uh, this is what he said was going to happen. And all of a sudden, this is, this is what is happening. And all of a sudden, the best explanation for why so many people entered this movement is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And that's why it became successful. That's why it exists to this day. That's why you can read history and you can see a lot of movements that start and sputter and die out quickly. Like that was happening a lot in ancient Israel. This one was unique because it changed the world forever. Something unprecedented in world history happened at the beginning. And there's no convincing natural explanation of it. Jesus the Messiah was crucified by the Romans. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And then three days later, his tomb was found empty and he appeared to people. And he appeared to people who believed in him. He also appeared to people who did not believe in him. One of those people really famously who did not believe in Jesus until they saw the resurrection was the Apostle Paul. What we're going to do in our lesson this morning is read some words from Paul where you're reading the words of someone whose life was utterly transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to somebody who probably had not had that experience. He's writing to somebody who's suffering and struggling in his faith, struggling to remain committed to Christ, struggling to remain committed to his ministry. And Paul's going to try to encourage him to stay faithful, even in a world where there is every reason not to. I would say in our world, there are a lot of reasons to not be a Christian. I'm not saying that to leave the faith because of them, but I'm saying there are reasons. There are pressures. There are people who struggle to remain faithful, even when they want to, because it's hard. Why is it that some people leave the faith? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, and I don't think this is, will be all-encompassing, but I can tell you a couple of them. One of them is the cultural strangeness of being a committed Christian. What I mean is it's hard to live your life and always be a little bit different than the people around you. It's hard to live your life, and when everyone wants to go do something you can't do it because you're the odd one. You're the different one. You're the strange one. You're the one who has a, a commitment to uh, an, an idea, a commitment to scripture that was written thousands of years ago. And people think, why would you change the way that you live? Why would you not do something you want to do because some ancient documents written thousands of years ago tell you not to? You don't have to. You can just ignore those and live your life. People do it all the time. Why would you live such a strange life? 
And when you watch TV and when you watch, uh, listen to music and when you get online, you begin to realize not a lot of people in our world really take it seriously. Not a lot of people in our world are strongly committed to it. And it's weird and strange and you feel peculiar and out of place when you do. There's pressure to just fit in and do what everyone else does. And you could probably still be happy and think, well, why would I not do that? I think, I think the cultural strangeness of Christianity in our modern world is a reason that people leave. I think sometimes not just the cultural strangeness, but the actual cultural opposition to Christianity. There are a lot of people who flat out don't like Christianity. They don't like the Bible. They don't like a lot of the things that are taught in there. They don't like a lot of the things Christians believe. And if you believe them, they don't like you. And they think that you are hateful, or they think that you are just ignorant, or they think that you are a fool, and they want to exclude you, or they want to uh, say bad things about you. And all of a sudden, you not only feel odd, you feel bad. Like, you, are, you suffer because of being a Christian. Uh, I would say, in, for a lot of us, that suffering is probably pretty mild. The further you zoom out on the globe, the more uh, intense that suffering can get in various places. But it is a reality that Christians have to go through that makes it hard to want to stay a Christian when there's actual suffering involved. And I would say a third reason, and this one is really complicated by the first two. The fact that you're strange for being a Christian and the fact that you might suffer for being a Christian is doubt. I'm going to be honest with you. The Bible's a strange book. <laughs> there are some things I read in the Bible, and I think that that's not at all the way that I, as a modern American, think. The Bible is a constant critique on my view of the world. The Bible is a constant critique of my view of, of a lot of things. And there are things in the Bible that I just don't understand, and I wish I did. And if you have doubts about something, and you feel odd for believing it, and there's pressure and suffering that comes with believing it, those doubts can start to ring a lot louder in your mind. You might start focusing more on the doubts and thinking, you know what, if I just give in to those, then it's a whole lot easier to just walk away from this and say that I'm intellectually justified in doing so. One word of caution about that. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because there are things you don't understand about Christianity, if you leave it, then you'll understand everything. Every worldview is going to have some issues that they don't understand very well. Uh, you, don't get, you don't get a free pass on not thinking because you stopped being a Christian. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you still have to critique your own worldview, and you'll find it's probably going to be problems with that. But as a Christian, yeah, there are some areas that I'm pretty confident in. There are some areas that I'm, I wish I was more confident than I was. But the reality is I've studied the Bible a lot, and there are things that I don't understand. And I, I try to accept those things because of my faith in Jesus. But you know what? There's going to be doubts, and they'll probably linger throughout your life. They might shift and move some. You might have, at one point in your life, this is your big problem area. 20 years later, that's not a problem anymore, but now this is a problem area. That's a struggle of the Christian life. You're all going to... Anyone who doesn't ever experience doubt is probably someone who hasn't thought a lot about their faith. Uh, and you know what? That might be fine. If, if you go through your life and you don't, uh, you know, you remain committed to Jesus, but you don't think critically about it, you know what? Great. <laughs> Congratulations. But a lot of people, that's not the way that they're wired, and they think a lot about things, and they want answers to everything. And if you want a confident answer to everything, 
You're going to have a hard time in this life. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to have a hard time in this life because some things we don't have answers to, and we wish we did. And that's, that's why every worldview takes faith to maintain it. Every worldview takes acceptance of some things based on uh, less evidence than other things. And uh, Christianity, you're going to have that too. I think you'll have evidence for a lot of things. There's some things that's going to be a lot harder to believe. Um, That's a struggle. It's a real one. And it's a reason that sometimes people leave the faith. And it's something that uh, we should be honest about. Uh, I would also say another reason people leave the faith is the failure of the church and the failure of their experiences within Christianity. Um, You don't have to be part of a church very long to realize that there are some faults there. Uh, You don't have to be around other Christians very long to realize, hey, these people aren't perfect. Now, hopefully you also will look in a mirror and recognize your own imperfections. Uh, You know, sometimes people have a much more critical view of the church than they do themselves. And so they see failures in the church and they say, this can't be what Jesus established, even though they themselves aren't always what Jesus called them to be. But the reality is there are some devastating things that happen in churches. There is abuse. There is a history in Christianity of tremendous things given to this world because Christianity has existed, and there's a darker history that's not so good. Uh, A book I would recommend people read if you're interested, it's called uh, Saints and Bullies, and it's a history of Christianity and how we've tended to sometimes be both of those things. Uh, Written by John Dixon, it's a pretty interesting book. But Christianity doesn't always have the greatest track record, and within churches, there's always areas for dissatisfaction. Sometimes people just don't want to be a part of it. Okay, so those are all real. Those are all things that we have to grapple with, and those are things that are difficult to change. I can't change most of those. We just have to deal with those. Uh, Hopefully, we can get better as a church. Hopefully, we can give answers to some difficult questions. We can't do much about the culture around us. We can try to be a, a light in the darkness and try to develop that sort of mindset. But these are things that are always going to exist. But here's something that uh, might help get us through, or at least uh, to me it's a word of comfort. These aren't all new problems. These are the same types of things that Christianity has always struggled with. These are the types of things that I think Timothy perhaps was struggling with. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of 2 Timothy. That's where we're going to be reading from here in just a minute. But in 2 Timothy... Timothy is uh, chosen by Paul to be an evangelist or a minister, a preacher uh, for the church at Ephesus. And he actually is given a pretty specific job description there. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Timothy is told, uh, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, you remain at Ephesus. And you instruct these men not to teach strange teachings, don't pay attention to myths or endless genealogies. These things give rise to mere speculation rather than actually furthering the administrative house law of God, which comes by faith. Like, what I want you to do is get people to stop teaching nonsense and to start teaching some truth. That's what he's supposed to do. As you read through 1 Timothy, you actually get the names of some of these people who Paul thinks should be opposed, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Well, when you read through 2 Timothy, it's a book written years later, a couple years later, um, Paul is writing back, and it seems that Timothy's ministry is struggling. I don't think he's actually accomplished what he was sent there to do yet. That happens in ministry sometimes. Um, You actually run into the names Hymenaeus and Alexander again in 2 Timothy, and it seems like they're still around. Um, You read through 2 Timothy, and it becomes clear that, that Timothy is facing pressure from his culture. 
He's in Ephesus. Uh, That's a pagan culture where Christianity has that strangeness about it. There's a very real threat of persecution as a Christian. This is one of those letters that Paul is writing while in prison. And it's probably his last letter. As he gets toward the end of it, he's talking about his upcoming death. Paul seems to know this is it for him. This is the last letter of Paul that we have in the New Testament. And it is anticipating his soon execution for the cause of Christ. And he's writing to someone who seems to be kind of nervous about that. And uh, Paul is trying to encourage him. There is going to be opposition. Remain faithful anyway. Don't be ashamed of it. Timothy seems to be growing somewhat ashamed of the suffering that comes with being a follower of Jesus. Somewhat timid in his stance for the gospel and in his teaching. It seems like he might be growing more and more silent and drifting further and further to the background of church life and of his faith. And that's one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter. He wants him not only to have faith in Jesus, but to act upon that in ways where he remembers what he was called to be, and he's faithful in his fulfillment of that commission. He, he, if you look at some of the problems Timothy's facing, a lot of them actually seem to come from within the church, too. You know, we talked about the church not being perfect. Timothy sees that. Some of Timothy's biggest problems are church problems. And so 2 Timothy becomes a really valuable letter for us who are struggling with how to remain faithful in the world around us, where Paul is encouraging Timothy with how to remain faithful in the world around him. I want to read through the first chapter, and as we do so, uh, try to point out a few of the persuasive techniques that Paul uses to try to convince Timothy about the truthfulness of the gospel and why he should remain committed to it, even in a world that gives him every reason not to. Uh, first Timothy, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 3, 2 Timothy 1.3 says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. You know, if someone's struggling with their faith, you know what Paul does for Timothy right here? He reminds him of something really important. He tells him, basically, I long to see you because I love you and I pray for you night and day. Do you know one thing that could help you in your faith is knowing that there are other Christians who legitimately love you and care about you and pray for you? But that's probably something we should, we should tell people more often. If we want others, and, and not just tell people, actually do also. Uh, but if you want people to remain committed in their walk with Christ, letting them know that you care about them and you care about their faith, that you love them, that you long for them, that you pray for them, is something that Paul takes seriously, and that's a word of encouragement to Timothy. I have to imagine Timothy getting this letter from Paul, and that being some of the first, those being some of the first words that he reads, was meaningful to him as he was struggling through this ministry. He goes on in verse 5, and Paul uh, reminds him of something that, uh, that also, this is going to have an appeal uh, for why you should remain faithful. He says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and that I'm sure is in you as well. A couple of things here. He says, I'm so confident that your faith is legitimate and sincere. It might struggle sometimes. It might go through some dark nights of the soul. You might have some difficulties, but I think it's sincere. And I think it's sincere just like your mother's was. I think it's sincere just like your grandmother's was. And all of a sudden he reminds him of the people who had a tremendous spiritual influence on him. 
I'm not saying make big life decisions, remain a Christian or whatever just because your parents told you to. But I will say, don't forget about the people who first taught you the gospel, if it was your parents or whoever it might have been. I was saying, don't forget about people who have loved you and labored over you as a, a disciple. To leave the faith would be, especially if you were raised in it, and that seems to be Timothy's situation, that's going to be heartbreaking to your parents. That's, remember them. Like, like put, your, put your family into the decision also. Uh, I'll say, you know, we live in a very individualist culture where that's not always what we're encouraged to do. Um, Paul did not live in that kind of culture. And he seems to think, if you heard the gospel from your grandmother and your mother, you should remember them as you think about what you're going to do from this point forward. Their faith was sincere. I think yours is also. Remember them as you proceed. He moves on in verse 6. He says, for this reason... I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says, I want you to remember when you first were commissioned to go and to preach the gospel and to be a prophet of God. I think that's probably the gift that was given through Paul. And and to serve the kingdom and to serve the church in this way. Remember that and don't let it smolder and die, but kindle it afresh. Sometimes remembering your conversion to Christ and remembering your initial call to become a Christian is something you should do often and regularly. That's something that might kindle afresh a faith that is waning or a commitment that is growing, uh, that is growing lax. Remember what you did when you first became a Christian. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy, don't grow timid here. Don't grow silent, but remember, God is with you, and when God is with you, what he gives you is power, and he gives you love unlike you've ever had before, and he gives you self-control or discipline. Maintain a lifestyle that is one of integrity, that can have an influence on the people around you. Those are things that are gifts from God. Cherish them and nurture them. So, verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed. So, Timothy might be growing ashamed, and he's saying don't. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Remember saying, don't be ashamed of your association with, even though I'm in prison and suffering, don't let that bring shame upon you. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, the one who was crucified. Uh, Don't let the suffering that can come with aligning yourself with a suffering Savior bring shame upon you. But instead, join with me in suffering for the gospel. The idea of joining with him is the idea of let's do this together. Don't try to do it on your own. And all of the things that I mentioned, the cultural strangeness, that's a lot harder to deal with if you're the only one dealing with it. But if you have a community that you can be strange together with, that makes it a little bit less strange. And the suffering, when you have a community that is a safe haven from that, that helps and when you have a community who, can, who is also struggling with some doubts, but some people might know more things in some areas, and you might be able to help, and you can talk about those things openly and honestly, have, joining with others through this Christian walk is an essential part of this Christian walk. Jesus didn't establish you know, millions of individual Christians to live their lives. He established the church the kingdom of God. He established his body, his people, his community. Those are all communal words about what we do with one another. 
Take advantage of that. That's for you. <laughs> you have other people who you join with in these things. And, and Paul is encouraging Timothy to join with him in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, who saved us. Remember that. Who called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Why was Paul called to be an apostle and a Christian? Was it because of his great works? Quite contrary to them. Uh, Paul's works up to that point were emphatically opposed to Jesus and Christianity. He's one of those people who he did not believe until he was stunned to meet a Jew who had been crucified. He, he met the resurrected Jesus. And all of a sudden he had this radical transformation in life because of that world-changing experience. He's not someone who was looking for that. He didn't believe in it. He was actively opposed to it. He was a persecutor. And yet he decided to become the persecuted. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. And that changed everything. And so as he describes what Jesus has done for him, he is wanting him to recognize that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has appeared. As you keep reading, he was called with a holy calling, and it wasn't because of his works as a persecutor. It was because God had a purpose for him. And he says, according to his purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, and now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the resurrection. That's what he's saying. He's like, all of this came to manifestation when Jesus appeared and he abolished death and he brought life and immortality to our world through the gospel. Don't forget what the foundation of the gospel is. Because I promise you, you won't find anything out, outside of the Christian faith that will provide more hope and meaning to you than that. Than the life and immortality brought to you by Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 11, this is why he was appointed as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. So we're going to conclude with verses 12 through 14. But in here, Paul makes it personal to him as to why he remains committed even through suffering, even through perhaps the doubts that might enter, even through the cultural strangeness, even through a, a church that's not always what it's called to be. Do you know why? He says in verse 12, for these reasons I suffer, but I'm not ashamed because I know him who I have believed. Because I know Jesus. It's like, I know him, and that's why I remain committed. And there might be people around me who aren't what they're supposed to be. And there might be some, uh, a world that doesn't quite accept that. But knowing them isn't what the foundation of my faith is. Knowing Jesus is. And I know him. And to Timothy, that will be meaningful because Paul is someone who's actually met him. He met him after the resurrection. Uh, and so he says, I know him. And that's why I remain committed. Not only that, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Uh, there's a little translation issue there. Some might say what he has entrusted to me, uh, which would change the, it a little bit. Uh, 
But I do think that uh, probably what I have entrusted to him is better because I think there's a, there's a contractual nature to this text where he's saying that he has entrusted something into me and I have entrusted something unto him. I have entrusted unto him my very life and soul and salvation. And I believe and am confident and am persuaded that I can trust God with that. If there's anyone you can trust with your life, with your future, with who you are and with your salvation, it's God. And Paul is saying, I know Christ and I trust that what I've given to him, he'll be able to keep until that day. But then also, verses 13 and 14 say, to retain the standard of healthy teaching or sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus and guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And so I trust that guard that God will guard what I've entrusted to him and we ought to guard what he has entrusted unto us, which I think is the truth of the gospel in bringing that to others and the faith that we have in that. And so we have given our hope to him and he has given his salvation to us. Let's guard those things. We live in a world that's going to try to tear them down. Don't let that happen. Remain committed, remain faithful, remain part of a community and know Jesus and trust Jesus. If there's anyone worth knowing and anyone worth trusting, it's him. And if we can help anyone do that here this morning, giving your life to him in baptism, naming him as Lord of your life and living for him from this day forward in the faith that he will guard what you are committing to him today, please let that be known. You can talk to some of our elders in the back or you can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.